From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio today is Dr. Molly Brewer, who graduated from medical school at Upstate. She's a gynecologic oncologist and also a veterinarian. She's on the Upstate campus to give a lecture, and I want to thank her for making time for HealthLink on Air. My pleasure. So you have an, uh, an interesting background. Did you always intend to go to medical school, or was that something you decided on during veterinary school? Well, actually, I went to veterinary school because I wanted to be a horse trainer. And horse trainers, they wouldn't let women be horse trainers when I was growing up. And so I went to veterinary school to work on horses. And it turns out I worked on a few horses, but I worked more on cows. And then after a few years of being a veterinarian, I moved to strictly small animal. And in the process of doing that, I decided I really loved medicine. And as I learned more and more about medicine, I started to hit walls in terms of what you could do with animals because there's an economic reality to animals that we don't see so much with people. And so I started thinking about medical school, and I thought, oh my gosh, I can't do that. And then, you know, I said, well, why not? So I applied to medical school, and the first year I applied, I did not get in. And so I said, oh, well, let's rethink this. So the second time I applied to medical school, I probably did a better job. And the interesting thing is I came to Upstate and I met with the, he was the Dean of Student Affairs at the time, Gino Andreata. He's since retired and he really encouraged me. And that's, that was, so I'm, I have, you know, a really warm place in my heart for Upstate. And then I ended up coming here to school because I just, I loved Gino Andreata. Well, so you've got a comparison of veterinary school and medical school. How do they compare? Um, well, you know, I always say that in veterinary school, we had to learn all species but one. And in medical school, all we had to do was learn one species. But I think it's much more complicated in medicine today um, because there's so much more we can do. And it's complicated with animals because there's more you can do, but not as much. Because, again, there's an economic limitation. But having that background, um, did it help you in anatomy and physiology and learning some of the basics in medical school? Did it help to have done some of those basics with other species? Absolutely. Okay. And what, what it really taught me is it taught me what I needed to know. Um, because I, I didn't learn enough in veterinary school. And so I went to medical school. I knew that I really needed to work hard. So, yeah, it helped me a lot. Wow. Well, I saw that you've been involved in research recently um, having to do with ovarian cancer. Is that a disease that affects animals as well as humans? Not really. You know, there is a description. Some of the rhesus monkeys will develop, as they age, will develop ovarian cancer. Some of the chimps, but it's fairly rare. Um, and most of the time in the lab, we don't have those older animals to study. So really, humans are our model. What we do is we take the disease in humans, and then we go back and try to develop an animal model. But that's been pretty tricky. But a lot of your research is focused on cancer um, in pregnancy, right? A lot of my, really my research has been focused on ovary cancer. Okay. Um, and ovary cancer in pregnancy is pretty rare. Clinically, what I've done is I've, I've written some articles. I've done some podcasts on cancer in pregnancy. So it's, it's an interest of mine because people think that you can't treat cancer in pregnancy. And in fact, you can treat most cancers in pregnancy 
and have the mom go ahead and deliver a viable a viable infant. Oh, that's encouraging. Yeah, it's very encouraging. Now, cancer in pregnancy, does that happen that often? It's more common than people realize. And there's two things. One is we're better diagnostically. And second is, as women are older, when they start to have children, for a multitude of reasons, we're seeing an increase in cancer in pregnancy. Absolutely. Now, are these women that had um, cancer before they got pregnant and maybe didn't know it, or are these cancers that develop um, after the woman's pregnant? Probably both. Oh. Are they treated the same? or Well, it depends on where they are in their pregnancy. So in the first trimester of pregnancy, when organs develop, there's a lot of things we can't do. We can't give chemotherapy. We can give it, but it's it's pretty pretty devastating to the to the fetus. We can't give radiation. Um, so there's a number of treatments that we can't do at certain points in pregnancy. But for example, when a woman, if a woman develops breast cancer, which is one of the common cancers we see in pregnancy, um, they can have their operation done if it's a surgical, if it's a surgical treatment. And then we usually wait till the second trimester to start chemotherapy. But they can get their, they can get most of the chemotherapy agents, not all of them. Um, and then we usually stop chemotherapy a month before delivery because otherwise the, the baby will be immunosuppressed at the time of delivery. Ah, okay. Now the baby, if you're giving chemo in the second trimester, the baby's getting that too, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so the major thing that we see is we either see early pregnancy loss when we see cancer in pregnancy, particularly with things like the leukemias. Um, many of those women will actually abort spontaneously because of leukemia. Um, and if we give chemotherapy in the early first trimester, they will often abort. Um, that's a disease that we can't wait in terms of chemotherapy. We have to treat them because it's such an aggressive disease. If we're talking about giving chemotherapy in the second trimester, the main side effect that we see is what we call IUGR. In other words, these are small babies. IUGR. Intrauterine growth retardation. Oh, okay. Um, and that's fairly common if they've gotten chemotherapy. Are there some cancers, though? I mean, you hear about cancers that are slow-growing versus aggressive. Are there slow-growing cancers that um, emerge during pregnancy that you don't have to treat, that absolutely. you can wait? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that we do with a lot of the cervix cancers that we see is we watch them during pregnancy, and many times we'll deliver them a little bit early so we can treat the cancer. But it's not, it's, that's not a cancer that can be treated during pregnancy because we will lose most of the time the woman will miscarry. So if cancer is diagnosed during pregnancy, it's likely, unless you don't have to do anything, it, um, it's, the treatment is likely to have some sort of an impact on, on the baby, right? Sure. So what are some of the things that, uh, do we know what would happen um, to a baby long-term, short-term, if the mother was treated for cancer during their gestation? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on when they're treated. That's the key. Okay. So if they're treated during the time that they're developing organs, often they will spontaneously miscarry or they will have severe um, birth defects. But that's really in the first probably 10 weeks of pregnancy. After that, the major side effect we see is growth retardation. Okay. A little bit of small babies. Um, if you deliver these babies within a month of chemotherapy, they will have what we call neutropenia or low blood counts. 
because the chemotherapy does cross the placenta. But otherwise, these babies, they followed these babies for years and they're, um, you know, they have the same IQs as their non-chemotherapy treated babies. They don't seem to really have any side effects, which is kind of interesting. That's encouraging that long term. Oh, very not. encouraging. Wow. Well, let me ask you this. Is it possible for a woman to undergo chemo and then safely give birth sometime afterward? Like if she had chemo uh, in her 20s and then it gets pregnant in her 30s, does having had chemo before affect her ability to, you know, carry a baby? Well, it may affect her ability to get pregnant. Okay. Because chemotherapy actually is toxic to the eggs, depending on where they are in their, in their maturation cycle. So if you give chemotherapy to a 20-year-old, for example, say she has lymphoma, so they give pretty aggressive chemotherapy for lymphoma. One of the things that we're now doing is we're now either harvesting eggs on those women and freezing them, wow. or there's some experimental work being done where they harvest part of their ovary, freeze it, and then put it back in the, in, in the patient. Um, because part of what we see is early menopause. That's one of the side effects of many of these chemotherapies. And so if a woman is 31 and she got aggressive chemotherapy in her 20s, she may go into early menopause. Huh. So okay. part of what we're now doing is counseling these women um, that there are options before they start chemotherapy in terms of preserving their fertility. Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Molly Brewer. She's a medical doctor and a doctor of veterinary medicine, and she specializes in gynecologic oncology. She's at Upstate to give a lecture, and we're grateful she agreed to speak with HealthLink on Air. So are there things that we've learned from veterinary medicine that have shaped the practice of human gynecology? Absolutely. I think particularly in cattle and horses, um, assisted reproductive therapy was done much earlier in both of those species. In livestock? Absolutely. Huh. Absolutely. High-producing dairy cows. Um, they would actually superovulate them. They would um, harvest the eggs, inseminate them, and they would put them into heifers that were not worth it very much. Huh. And so they then so this super this super producing cow could then have five offspring in one year as opposed to one. So that's and, and you know that's what we do now in women, but we were way ahead of it in veterinary medicine. And the same is true of mares. You know, there's a lot of artificial insemination that's done depending on the breed. Some breeds don't allow it, but that was long before we did artificial insemination in, in, in people. Now, the gestation is totally different in animals, right, than Correct. humans. Correct. Um, humans is ten, 10 months? Well, they say nine, nine months, but it's 40 well, weeks. Well, yeah, 38 to 40 weeks. 38 to 40 weeks. Yeah. And the gestation is longer. Mares are about 11 months, and cows are about the same. Huh. Are there, can you talk about some of the um, complications that we see in humans versus in animals? Do we see the same sorts of risks um, at preterm labor or um, diabetes during pregnancy? Do we see some of the same things in animals as humans? Not exactly. I mean, one of the things that you sometimes will see in these particularly high-producing dairy cows, um, they'll have pregnancy loss sometimes because they're fat, um, some of the same problems that we see in women. But preterm labor, unusual, I think. Okay. 
and high blood pressure and things like that. We, I mean, these are things that we are very concerned about in, in women. We don't measure it in animals. But we don't even look for it. No, huh? we don't look for it. But, you know, animals don't smoke. You know, they don't, um, they're taken care of, particularly if they're, you know, if they're valuable. And um, Caref- they have Carefully a, fed. Carefully and- fed, exactly. <laughs> so it's a completely different lifestyle, if you would. Well, and um, in terms of attending births, um, do veterinarians attend births of in in cow barns and things necessarily? Sometimes they do. Sometimes, sometimes if it's difficult. But normally, if it's a normal pregnancy, the baby farmer would be will be born, and the farmer would yeah, find farmer. the baby in the yeah, morning. Exactly. Right? Or, exactly. Okay. Wow. Well, how big of a problem are infections during pregnancy and delivery for humans versus animals? You know, it, it's, well, it, it's becoming more prevalent in women. Um, we have had a series of, it's a, it's a bacteria called group A strep, and we've mm-hmm. had a series of infections. Um, they're starting to be reported around the country, and these are absolutely devastating infections. And in, in our area, we've now had eight, have eight women. One of them died. Um, and I've had two, personally, that I've taken care of because it's not, they don't have cancer, but they're difficult patients, so that's why they call me in. But yes, we do see a lot of infections in pregnancy, and this is one of the more devastating ones. Um, so, group A strep is that like strep, the same kind of strep you would get strep throat? It can or, be, mm-hmm. really, it can be, yeah. But it's devastating to women, particularly around the time of of when they give birth. So, the majority of these are actually described in women postpartum, re- having recently had their baby. Um, probably because of the trauma of childbirth and some you know, other factors. Um, but we do see other infections. We see group B strep. Um, group B strep doesn't hurt the mom so much, but it can hurt the baby. The baby can be born septic, in other words, infected. Um, we see a lot of viral infections that, depending on when they are in their pregnancy, can cause either birth defects or other problems with babies. So infectious d- disease is, is really important in people. It's also important in animals. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here to talk about this. My guest has been Dr. Molly Brewer. She's a veterinarian and also a gynecologic oncologist and a graduate from Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.